Welcome to Bickering Peaks. From the star with Aiden and Lindsay. She wore blue I'm Aiden. I'm Lindsay. This is Bickering Peaks. And hope you've come to the right place. Yes, yes, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> it's too late to turn away now. Uh, you are here to join us as we discuss 1986's Blue, Blue Velvet. Velvet. Yes. Uh, the David Lynch film that is perhaps the most David Lynch film. The lynchiest Lynch film. The lynchiest Lynch film, do I you would think say. It, do, you, do you think it's the most David Lynch film ever made, like that he ever did? More Lynchian than The Return, even? Yeah, I would say so. I would say just because of, well, if you say Lynchian, then, you know, if you're going by the David Foster Wallace definition of Lynchian that we've always used, then absolutely, because yeah. it literally has every single element of that uh, in here. And yeah, and it's it does it perfectly. Like this is if 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 you ever want to introduce someone to David Lynch, I say watch Blue Velvet because it is it is a great introduction. It's uh, odd but very you know accessible. Very accessible. Yeah, yeah. There's a straightforward storyline that we watch, and it's it's fun to watch while you're watching it. But so. horrifying. Yeah, scary. Clearly, Aiden really likes this film. I do. I enjoy much this film. much more than you enjoyed Dune. Let's not talk about Dune. Okay. Let's not bring Fair up enough. Dune, Fair except enough. for as a counterpoint to this film, perhaps. Fair enough. It is Lynch's next film after making Dune, so he kind of went, you know, sci-fi and then came brought it right back to reality in a sense um, with this film that is written by him, directed by him, uh, produced by the De Laurentiis uh, group, yep. I guess. Uh, starred his girlfriend at the time, Isabella Rossellini. And Kyle McLaughlin, again, plays mm-hmm. a starring role. So uh, it's you're starting to see that that uh, core group of yep. people really because Jack Nance is in Jack this. In and it. who else is? Uh, the uh, Grandma Wormtongue. Grandma Wormtongue. <laughs> Why can we never remember that actor's name? But Brad Dourif. Brad Dourif. Uh, yeah. He is also in this. Yeah, and um, it, and it, you're right. I mean, it features all of the uh, the the common tropes that later and to this day have been associated with David Lynch Mm -hmm. are all kind of front and center here. I think we've come up with quite the list, quite an extensive list of um, Lynch-isms, I think we called them. Sure. Yeah. uh, Which we'll get to. But yeah, first of all, uh, for those of you who have not watched David Lynch's Blue Velvet, what are you doing listening to this podcast? (laughs) Turn it off right now. Go watch. Go watch. And then come back. Uh, because it's it is a really brilliant film, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about a young man, Jeffrey Beaumont, who returns home from college after his father suffers some kind of uh, heart attack or, or some. I think it's a stroke. I think it's yeah. a traumatic brain injury, a sudden stroke or something that uh, hospitalizes him. So Jeffrey has to come home and run the business and uh, take care of things that on the home front. And while he's there, he gets kind of embroiled in this. Murder sort mystery. of murder mystery, yeah. yeah, but you know, with drug deals and shady underworld characters and lounge singers yeah. and all hidden and obscured by the the darkness of night. Yeah. In this kind of idyllic picturesque suburban type town of Lumberton. Yeah. And it's uh yeah, it's it's what is it? <laughs> <laughs> what is Blue Velvet? Yes, it yeah. is. It is that thing. It is the story of Jeffrey Beaumont. Um, but I mean, the 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 way it's treated is typically Lynch. In that, mm-hmm. it, you know, it, it's it has elements of noir and uh, a lot of fifties Hollywood kind of feel to it, mm-hmm. especially in 
uh, some of the costumes and the the way everyone's the sensibilities. Portrayed. I think the sensibilities yeah. is a good way. Of but it, but, but with this '80s varnish on yeah. it, right? You know, with you know. Jeffrey Beaumont, Kyle McLaughlin's character with an earring and yeah, um, the flock of Sandy, seagulls hair, yeah, <laughs> a little bit, yeah, uh, yeah. So it's 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 pioneering that fifties eighties look that the that Twin Peaks so uh, brought to the fore in yeah. the late eighties, early nineties. So. Yeah, and absolutely, if if you know someone who is a Twin Peaks fan, um, but they've never tried another movie or they. They're reluctant to because they know David Lynch is an oddball at times. Uh, Blue Velvet is probably the most closely uh, linked yeah. to Twin Peaks. Uh, In fact, it, I think a lot of people have read into this story as being almost a prologue to Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Beaumont being a Dale Cooper-esque figure who yeah. has this, you know... Um, Any curiosity yeah, and desire and to do good. Exactly. Yeah. And, and you know, fi- kind of stumbles upon a mystery that takes over his whole life and changes the way that he looks at things by the end of the the... In this case, the two-hour-long journey that we follow him through. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, so, I mean, it, it is kind of related in many ways, much more related to Twin Peaks than some of Lynch's other things. Yeah. Even Mulholland Drive, which is, you know... Yeah, one of the more Lynchian. Ostensibly, yeah and, yeah, and led directly from Twin Peaks itself. But. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, in a lot of ways it, it does borrow a very similar... Uh, set up to Twin Peaks there's mm-hmm. a central mystery you know Jeffrey Beaumont finds the ear yeah. out in the field and then everything kind of spirals out from there and yeah. uh, we you meet know, all the characters the that characters. are associated with exactly. this and and they're, then they're all yeah and there's multiple layers and there's there's darkness underneath the sunny uh, Lumberton exterior right and just like Twin Peaks there was the cocaine and <laughs> behind Laura's uh, dead body right so there's there's the similar kind of uh, play of uh, suburbia and you know a uh, idyllic scene on the top and then a darkness underneath uh, is one of the most Lynchian Lynchianisms ever <laughs> discussed. Uh, it's the most cliche one almost at this point, yeah. but uh, Blue Velvet deals with it in a very cliche kind of way. Well, at, yeah, at, right at from points. the very start. I mean, everybody talks about this opening sequence, which kind of explains everything in two minutes or something mm-hmm. like that. You know, you see the, the beautiful you know, suburban skies and it's, it's Penny Lane. It is Penny Lane exemplified right here on screen. And, uh, and it all ends with this kink toes and Jeffrey's father collapsing on the front in, in his front lawn. And then the, um, the camera goes down down from the blue skies and the white picket fences and the red roses and, uh, Bobby Vinton's version of blue velvet Mm -hmm. fades away into this droning, crunching sound as we see all the insects burrowing beneath the grass. It's so obvious, but I, I do, I do see how, I do see how, you know, uh, movie audiences at the time, you know, I, I think that would have been, very cool to watch. Yeah, very, oh yeah. You know, at the, especially at the time, right? So, mm-hmm. so Lindsay covered most of the basics for the production history already. Uh, you know, time and, and production and everything like that. Uh, who were some other players though? Who did the music on this one? Do you remember? Well, Angela Battlementi was was doing uh, did all the the scoring for this. So I, I think this is the first. One I think then, it was right? the first time that they yeah. that they worked together. Um, Angelo also appears playing Tickling the yes, Ivories at the, the, that is the slow, slow club. club. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and uh, but you do have that classic Bobby Vinton song, which interestingly, I think they tried to re-record it because the studio wasn't going to pay for the original version. Mm. But Bobby Vinton came back to record it and his voice had changed. So they had to change the key that the, the key song was in and it didn't work. So David Lynch convinced the company to the pay film company for, the to pay for the original. 
um, after all. That's so, funny. which is kind of entertaining to. <laughs> I, I seem to remember reading that it might have been in Claire Nina Norelli's book. Um, yeah, about about the music of, of Twin Peaks that she interview or she came across an interview with Angelo Badalamenti where he talked about rewriting that. I think yeah. if I'm citing this correctly. Uh, another familiar name, uh, Dwayne Dunham, did the editing. I mean, again, it's it's not always the 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 biggest title, but uh, you know, he did direct the the first major episode of Twin Peaks after the pilot, and he he's been with David Lynch for a long time. And didn't Joanna Ray do the casting the, for did, this? Yep, Joanna so. Ray did the casting. So again, yeah, this really is the core team of all the future Lynch projects yeah. uh, coming together here, um, and yeah, it's it's really it shows. It shows that this is this is a team that he was comfortable working with, and uh, he did a great job with it. Mm-hmm. So, when was the first time you watched the film, Maiden? It must have been five or six years ago. Okay. Uh, we'd finished watching Twin Peaks, obviously. Uh, I think I think this might have been the first David Lynch movie I watched that wasn't Firewalk with Me. I think I watched Firewalk with Me first. No, we watched Mulholland Drive long, okay, long before, before this. Okay. Yes. Okay. But Blue um, Velvet might have been the next one. Yeah, the one. next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I think, and since then, I think we've watched it. This is probably the fourth time I've watched it. Uh, and the first time I remember being just blown away. Like my, my initial response was just like, wow, this is, this is everything that's great about Lynch in one complete package. Mm-hmm. I didn't even mind the lack of subtlety about, you know, the darkness and the light and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought it worked quite well because it was a pretty straightforward story. So why not just lay the cards out on the table there? Just forget subtlety. Uh, Cause it works on all these other levels beyond, um, you know, you don't need a lot of symbolism or, or ambiguity, you know, mm-hmm. it just works on the, the simplistic level that it does operate on. Um, and I loved it for that. Um, yeah, that first time. The second time, I was a little more skeptical. I was like, oh, yeah, no, me. It doesn't have, because it doesn't have that depth. It does mm-hmm. not have the the uncertainty um, of a Mulholland Drive or a mm-hmm. Lost Highway or, God help us, yeah, Inland, Inland Empire. Empire. But, um, you know, coming back here the third or the fourth time, uh, it's still really enjoyable. I, I still really loved it. What, what about you, Lindsay? When did you, did you watch this before uh, you watched Twin Peaks? no. No, this, uh, this, after the summer I watched, or the spring summertime that I watched Twin Peaks the first time back in 2010, I kind of went on a David Lynch binge and watched everything <laughs> in okay. a very, very short amount of time. I just wanted to absorb this entire world that I had really been pushing away because of my fear of Twin Peaks that <laughs> stems from five years old, yeah. watching Twin Peaks as a toddler. Um, and so I, I, I must have watched it. It, it, summertime, sometime in the summer of, of 2010. And yeah, I guess I didn't show it to you or you weren't interested in watching it for a while. Um, because I do remember watching it three or four times before you watched it you with watched me. It. Oh, okay. And uh, it always disturbed me because the story was so, um, I don't know the word, visceral isn't really quite the word, but it hit me on, on a really... Um, like, it, it hurt to watch. I don't know, it, you know, the, the whole thing with Dorothy Valens and the pain of her situation and then the, like, that that trauma that then leads to this kind of sexual awakening for her almost, in a way, that's how I read it. So that, you know, the fact that she, that she embraces this pain in a sexual way, um, 
it was so like she was so dehumanized in parts and that really hurt to watch but I couldn't help but watch and then watching Jeffrey Beaumont who seems like a proto Dale Cooper um, but also this David Lynch Mm -hmm. stand-in navigate through this world and then Dennis Hopper being this this ultimate bad guy kind of forcing these two characters through the most unimaginable situations it just it was such it was it really did change the way I looked at film and the way that I looked at David Lynch like even after watching Twin Peaks and being blown away by Twin Peaks the appreciation I had for Twin Peaks was different like I liked the storylines and I was interested in who killed Laura Palmer and I was interested in Mm -hmm. you know what was going to happen to Dale Cooper and then that cliffhanger ending that hadn't been answered um, and wasn't going to be answered for another seven years at the time that I watched it um that was separate. That was like a different kind of appreciation. Watching Blue Velvet, as a writer, I felt like this was a story that, again, like I wish I'd written or I wish that I'd thought of. Like I felt like it inspired me to do more with my own writing mm-hmm. um, and to dig deeper and to write about screwed up, fucked up characters and to try and get to the heart of what makes them tick. But without explaining it I think that's the really great thing that mm. that I'd never really you know because I watched this before I watched Eraserhead before I watched Inland Empire so I mean a lot of the things that I questioned when I first watched it like why does the yellow man keep standing when he's dead or um you, you know like any of those questions that David Lynch refuses to answer I wanted answers to so in an, in a kind of immature way I thought you know that's how you know if I answered those questions I could be a better writer but you know, after watching Blue Velvet and after realizing what Blue Velvet kind of stands for, I realized that the questions are actually the more, most important part of, thing. Part of it, yeah. So it was just it it changed the way I looked at at film and and over the years I've I've I appreciate it more and more every time I watch it. I think I get more out of it. That's good. I mean, I I don't. No. <laughs> yeah, I found it. I mean, I, I I do love the movie, but for me, it's it's. It leans a bit more towards entertainment. There are certain scenes, though, where I'm just still like amazed and um, blown away by by what they do. And and uh, you mentioned one of the big ones is when Jeffrey and uh, Dorothy are, are having sex for the mm-hmm. first time, and he hits her. Yeah. And it's everybody like all, the both of those characters' kind of reaction to that experience yeah. is just so telling. Um, and it's so I think visceral is a good word because it just hits you. You're like, oh my god. He's kind of into it. He didn't know that until just now. And but he she, hates himself. But he for hates it. himself for it because he knows it's still wrong. And yeah. you know, he knows that her enjoying it is probably not out of actual enjoyment. It yeah. might be some sort of bad woman syndrome or something. There, there's something more to it on her end. Yeah. And he's aware of that, right. but he can't help himself. <laughs> and yeah. all that goes on in this this really tense little scene. Um, and it's and it, the rest of the movie kind of supports and surrounds that. Um, and it, it feeds into all the other actions that, that Jeffrey and uh, Dorothy especially mm-hmm. kind of go through, you know, her winding up at, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, Sandy's house and all this stuff. Uh, right. We haven't even mentioned Sandy, like the, the yeah. beautiful, wholesome girl next door. That, Laura Dern. Yeah. That mm-hmm. uh, that Kyle falls or that Kyle, Kyle. <laughs> that Jeffrey falls in love with. Yeah. Um, and uh, and how she reacts to all of this, like that that kind of I mean, it's so fucked up. There's just no other way yeah. to talk about it. But well, the interesting thing for me is how the the way you get exposed to how fucked up right. it is because you follow Jeffrey along and yeah. you're with him every step along the way. Uh-huh. So 
when he, you know, it all really kind of happens when he's in the closet and he sees uh, the bad dude. Yeah. Frank. Frank. Frank Booth bust in and bust up. What, what's <laughs> called the ritualistic sex scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> With the nitrous oxide, oxide or whatever it, it yeah. is. And, and, yeah. and the blue velvet. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, up until that point, you're, you're, you're along with Jeffrey and you're like, oh, he's taking risks. Like he's going into her, her apartment and spraying for bugs or mm. pretending to spray for bugs so he can break in later on. And you're like, oh, that's risky. And, but and it's, so, it's like Hardy Boys kind of. Exactly. And, know, and then this just ramps it yeah. up to such an extreme but the performance is so amazing and uh the visuals are great and you're you get a little bit of jeffrey's reactions Mm -hmm. and there's the whole scene with uh the fact that uh dorothy's you know catches him beforehand and and stabs him in the face even and stuff so i mean the stakes are getting raised very quickly here yeah but it's not so jarring that you you can't continue along for the ride it doesn't it doesn't feel surreal the way some of lynch's other oddities and odd scenes uh, sure, it's not it's surreal. not the Eraserhead baby, or it's not um, you know characters switching faces, yeah. like keeping the same names, like in Lost Highway Lost or Inland Empire. Um, so you're kind of you're still on board mm-hmm. as a like a conventional film audience would be on board with this, and I, and I think that contributed to its success at the box office, like mm-hmm. it was critically and box office acclaimedly excess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. So I mean, it it. It, but I think part of that is because it really is. It can be read. It can be left at a very surface level without diving into that deeper subconscious stuff. Even though it is very unsubtle in its approach to um, like the subconscious and and what lo- what lurks beneath, as you said. Um, but I think that was acceptable mm-hmm. to you know '80s society that was you know starting yeah. to come to grips with drugs in the inner city and all of these you know gang warfare in in places like new york and Mm -hmm. uh los angeles and uh, you know things happening in eastern europe breaking down the wall i mean all that stuff was coming to a head in the 80s so and especially in 1986 when this came out so i mean i think the audiences were prepared for that the rest of what came out of it you know how after this point lynch really did become uh, a verb like you or you know yeah, like yeah, lynchian yeah, was yeah. was an adjective i think yeah. that's what i meant to say yeah <laughs> lynch lynchian becomes an adjective because of this film and that is not just because of that you know great opening shot with diving beneath the grass that's fine that's great but there's so much more that david lynch throws into this yeah. that lends him that or that that lends power to that adjective yeah. That Lynchian adjective that comes out of this film. So I want to talk about one of those aspects, which I found this was maybe the first time I noticed it so uh, clearly on this watch, probably because it was my fourth watch. So I could, could pick up on these cues. But uh, there was a lot more of um, that combination of 50s and 80s. Yeah. And this, you know, and it, it spread across everything from from the music of the opening, you know, on the blue curtains is very 50s. It's swelling kind of. Uh, strings and everything. Uh, and it feel, then, yeah, it feels like a film noir kind of. Yeah, yeah. You know, build and everything, right? Yeah. Uh, and then right after a you know a very classic Bobby Vinton 1950s song. Which, well, well, that's the thing. Like, and, and that it actually goes from the music because the music is the opening credits on yeah. just the blue uh, right, right screen, right. and then it goes into the song. Yes. Um, and then that's right. Yeah, but then later on, all this the drone and everything feels very 80s. It feels yeah. very industrial, uh, very after. You know, much much later than 
than the 50s stuff. Yeah. And so you have this kind of, uh, you know, the, this, the sound, the music, as well as the visuals uh, have this dichotomy of uh, the 80s is kind of the, the dirtier, murkier, uh, grimier stuff. Mm-hmm. And then the 50s is the, the, the sheen, the, the, the uh, surface level of Lumberton. You know, Lumberton mm-hmm. looks like it still is in the 50s. Well, even the, like, the radio station yeah. call-out signal, right? I mean... <laughs> lost, lost. Yeah, I mean that's that's great, um, and then yeah, and then like the the more eighties stuff like the club slow club seems a little more eighties. Got you know it still has. Well, I mean it's it's got a, a bit of a retro vibe to it, yeah. but but I mean everything else is going on like the drug dealers. Yeah, that's I mean I don't know much about drugs, you know <laughs> me in my <laughs> my goody two shoes ways, yeah. um, but. I don't know how much drug dealing there was on that level in the 1950s. You know, if you weren't, mobsters did it. Mobsters were involved in this kind of thing. And Frank Booth definitely is a mobster. But there's an 80s level. Like, I mean, even the way that Brad Dourif's character, his shiny yeah, suit. Shiny suit and, jacket, yeah. I mean, a, a lot of that stuff is just ripped right out of, you know, Scarface or something like that. In, in a sense, it's very 1980s mobster and drug culture. But, um, but you're right. There is that kind of... Um, that 50s tinge to it. And there's other scenes that are very 50s that have an 80s tinge to it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I think it's not so much that classic Lynchian thing, that the 50s, 80s thing. I think that was just something yeah, that, that happened at the time. It's something that, that, here, yeah. that, and that, that happens all the time. Like right now, you know, there's a 90s, uh, you know. Kind of revival. Kind of revival. Yeah, 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 I see kids at school wearing platform shoes that I wore when I was in high school. Yeah. Maybe not high school, but still. Chokers on girls. Yeah, yeah. right? So, I mean, these these things get cycled through. And I think the 80s were just the time when the 50s were being recycled. So it was a perfect time for David Lynch, who kind of, you know, came of age and and grew up in the 50s and idolized that period. Idealized that period. Yeah, idealized, yeah. Um, For him to, to then take that and put this grimy, either grimy undertone or, you know, smear it over top. It yeah, just yeah. made sense, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh, and the the way I think that's most idealized in the, the film is uh, the two women. Right. So there is the kind of 50s pure uh, teenage girlfriend. Sandy. Sandy. She's it's straight out of Greece. That's how I think of every time <laughs> is uh, Sandy D. Yeah. Uh, but and then uh, Isabella Mussolini's uh, Dorothy Valance on the other right. side, which is... Even Valance has this kind of like yeah, Richie darker, yeah, sultry kind yeah. of feel to it, right? Which is a little more, a little more eighties, a little more grown up. Even though I know what you're saying, but yeah, uh, but yeah, and the, and you know, she's obviously again the brunette with the with the eighties, uh, the Doctor Frankenfurter hair, yeah, <laughs> which is fake. I mean, at one point she pulls it off, but she's wearing it the rest of the time. It's, sure, it's kind of an odd. It seems to add another layer to that, but. Uh, yeah, so you have the blonde and the brunette mm-hmm. um, juxtaposition again, which is another Lynch favorite. Um, and yeah, and it really highlights that. And then when the two women do finally meet right. in that very awkward scene, uh, it's it's this clash. And it's it frankly, it feels like a love letter from the 80s to the 50s. Like, you're going to be terrified in 30 <laughs> years when, when right. the shit arrives in your doorstep right. naked and 
screaming your name kind right. of stuff, right? Um, and I just love that as as kind of an epitome of the, the the conflict of that those two elements. So I've read that the genesis of this film was a vision, sort of, that David Lynch had of a severed ear in a field. That's mm. the that's where the impetus for this whole thing came from. Um, if you want to talk about catching the big fish, right? I mean, if if he's fishing for ideas, there's nothing more iconic about this film than than that ear in the field, which is so open-ended in terms of the mysteries that it it reveals. Where did the ear come from? Is that person still alive? And we see that in Jeffrey's approach to this investigation, which begins with this very Hardy Boys, like we said, very Hardy Boys kind of, um, um you know, gumshoe type, yeah, type of investigation, yeah tendency that he has mm-hmm. to take the ear in a, in a paper bag to the police department and, you know, yes. go after the answers and try and catch the bad guys. But it's very golly gee, like, let's let's do this. And I thought that was really, um, I thought that was really interesting because of, it's not surreal in the sense that we think of, of surrealism in a David Lynch film, but it isn't something that we come across every day. Right. And it certainly isn't the kind of thing that someone like Jeffrey would would come across, at least the Jeffrey that we see in the film. There are deleted scenes out there that lend a different cast to 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 Jeffrey's Jeffrey's character. character. But um, but for this character who seems to be very clean cut and wholesome himself, you know, he even wears his his shirt buttoned up to the top, top top button, just like David Lynch does Um, for him to find a. A severed ear, kind of moldy severed ear in a field, um, is is just the right amount of out of the ordinary without pushing him out of his comfort zone so quickly. It's the perfect setup to bring us into the story, but also to bring a character like Jeffrey, who we literally meet. I think he's on screen for only a minute or two before mm-hmm. he finds the ear, and we're brought right into this mystery. So. It's kind of the perfect setup for this whole film, and I love that it's that was the whole the, the beginning part. Yeah, of the origin, the origin of the story thing. of yeah, Blue Velvet yeah. was this yeah. year in the field. It's how David Lynch came into the story. It's how Jeffrey comes into the story. It's how we come into the story. Yeah, so just like the dead girl was the impetus for uh, Twin Peaks. Right, uh, that that exists here. Um, but there, I just wanted to mention uh, a few of the other Lynch tropes mm-hmm. or Lynchisms that, that we came across. I'm just, I have them, I just noted them down as I was taking notes. Yeah. Uh, one was uh, logging, dr- logging trucks. Yeah. Obviously, a diner. Uh, they do visit, what is it? Do you remember what it was called? I forgot to write the name no, of it. No, I forgot what it's but, called. Yeah, but yeah, there, there's the diner as well that uh, he and uh, Sandy go to. So there's the club, uh, the slow club, with red curtains, an MC who announces things, and a musical act that uh, is potentially magical in some way. A dream sequence? Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah. You, could, you could argue that that the entire film is a dream sequence, which is one interpretation yeah. we could get to when we get to the end. But, um, yeah, this, this dream sequence is, is something that... Um, I mean, not just because it's a dream, but the whole film kind of operates on some level of dream logic as well, which yeah. is is another, as we've said many times before, this the uh, it doesn't get any more Lynchian than dreams. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, another one. Uh, someone I think it was uh, Jeffrey saying, 
it's a strange world. Just just something Lynch does, throws in there, you know. And also, I think, uh, oh, and there's the dream that Sandy had. Sandy describing a dream. Someone describing a dream in right. some way. Very Lynchian. Uh, where else were we? There's a reference to falling. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Valance at one point, I mm-hmm. think, is saying it uh, when she's being carted off, perhaps. You right. know, saying, oh, I'm falling, I'm falling. Uh, also, I think in a, in a later scene, there was a smash TV as well, which is something in Firewalk with me and right. some other elements have, have shown as well. Um, so, I mean, really, this it's not just the big stuff. It's not just the, the 50s, 80s, not the darkness and the light, not just, you know, a central mystery smiling off. This really does have even small elements that he comes back to again and again and again um, are, are throughout this thing. And I think that's that's really a testament to the way that David Lynch makes films. It's not that he he's not like a, a typical filmmaker, at least this how other people have interpreted this and how I see this. Maybe you disagree with me, Aiden, but um, he doesn't seem to take a story and write the story and use the plot as a way to explore themes or ideas. He starts with an image. or He's a visual artist. That's his, that's his calling. Mm-hmm. That's where he started as an artist, was in, was in art, visual art. So for him to start with an image of a severed ear, for him to gravitate time and time again to red curtains or smash TV sets or zigzag uh, uh, carpeting or, mm-hmm. or whatever. Or someone repeating themselves, you are so fucking suave. Right. You know, like <laughs> it's those are things that I mean, he he talks about them in Catching the Big Fish. These are ideas that come to him from his subconscious. They bubble up from his subconscious or his unconscious unconscious and they they then take root on screen in some form. And the fact that they repeat over and over again, that is, that's total dream logic. That's mm-hmm. total dream. Um, yeah, imagery. Yeah, imagery, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. it's what we all experience when we dream. It's all, it's what we experience when um, we have a dream and then all of a sudden we're in our waking world. We're seeing things that remind us of those dreams or remind us of those tendencies that, that are dormant, that are laying dormant in our conscious waking world, um, but are always there in our minds. So, I mean, and the way that Lynch does that is by taking them and putting them in situations that we recognize. So we've talked about this many, many times before, that there's that juxtaposition between the banal and the macabre. And that's what that's what's happening here, is that there's this, uh, and it happens in Eraserhead, it happens in elephant man there are elements of it in dune to a to a small degree but where you have um yeah for example like a a severed ear in a field Mm -hmm. it's it's banal and macabre right there it's dream imagery that is put into everyday reality in such a way that it's uncanny it's and i'm using that in the freudian sense of the word uncanny where it's it's just not you know as soon as you see it that it's not really supposed to be that way. Yeah. That's not not what's supposed to happen. Yeah. And so that is what is so unsettling about Blue Velvet is that it's like watching a dream. And when you finish watching this film, it takes, for me anyway, it takes a little while to kind of decompress and come back to reality. And I can't imagine what that must have been like watching it in a theater because Mm -hmm. you are literally I mean theaters are a perfect place for Lynch 
you know, watching it in a darkened place, it's a place you go to specifically to have your reality fractured for Mm. an hour and a half or two hours. And then you leave the theater and you enter out into the street and, you know, reality doesn't seem real. Everybody Mm. else has been going about their business, but you've been watching Blue Velvet for the last two hours. So, I mean, your world is different. It's shifted on its axis a little bit and you have to get back to reality. And I think that's where... That's why Blue Velvet sticks with me so much because it's the first film that really did that for me. So, uh, and that's why it does it, I think. Hmm. It's just the way that he puts that dream imagery directly into... Yeah, the real. And and here it's it's so subtle that... It's just unsettling enough that, mm-hmm. that you're that you're shifted a little, you're you're moved a little bit out further away from reality, but you're still grounded enough that you you're gonna follow the the story and you're gonna relate with the characters yeah. and you're gonna allow them to have these odd character moments. Even yeah. Frank Booth, there was I one of my notes was you know there's that scene where he's watching Dorothy sing and he's mm-hmm. crying. Mm-hmm. She's bringing him to tears because in some fucked up way he seems to love her right. you know and that's really fucked up to add that dimension to his character too but the film goes there the film pre- presents that too and uh that in a way feels surreal because he's otherwise just pure evil in every mm-hmm. single sense of the word uh but there it, it it adds that that small touch that that unsettles you a little bit because it makes him human in a, mm-hmm. in a way that is not supposed to happen. Your your bad men, your bad characters, your evil bad guys aren't supposed to be human. Exactly, and and that's odd in a in a film that you know relies on putting you in that other world. You know, it brings you into the blue velvet world, and then it gives you a little t- extra push towards humanity for its most otherworldly character in this one element. And it's it's really it's striking because it's playing with that line between uh, you know. A film world where you can have someone like Frank Booth exist and the real world where you can have someone like Frank Booth exist as long as he also has a human side, you know? Uh, and that's that's a really interesting uh, tug of war in, in the in the movie that, that I don't get in a lot of the other Lynch movies. Uh, the, like, Mulholland Drive is great, but it has, the whole thing feels like a dream. And then when, you know, what's-her-name wakes up at the end, potentially, if that's how you view the movie, it makes sense. You're like, okay, she was dreaming for most of the movie and the rest of it's just kind of all sl- slotting together. Um, but this one still feels a little more grounded for me, and I think it really it adds to the, the, the depth of the film. To go along with that idea of the evil character being given human characteristics that that help root him in... Like, I, I, I don't follow you quite... I don't quite follow what you're saying about how that character could only exist in film. That he needs humanity in order to exist. In. No, no, no. I'm saying the opposite. Like usually, uh, like the Frank Booth that we exist, that we see exist outside of that scene, mm-hmm. is just a film character, right? And then this pulls him away from that a little bit and that, puts that him back snippet. in reality. Yeah, a little bit more. Okay, yeah. because that's what that's what I was going to say that uh, with Jeffrey Beaumont's character because he is, you know, a standard film good Trope. guy. Yeah, he's yeah. A, he's the protagonist, the hero mm-hmm. of the film. But he hits Dorothy and he embraces mm-hmm. for even a, a, a short period of time, a fraction of a second, he embraces a dark, dark side of himself that I think is... Not to he kills a guy at the well, end. Well, yes, of course, he kill, <laughs> of course. But that's in self-defense and there's yeah, yeah. there are other reasons there's that he's doing that. In that yeah. moment, it's much more complex what's mm-hmm. going on with him. Why does he decide to hit Dorothy? She begs him to hit her while they're having sex. And when he does... 
and he does. He does it twice, mm-hmm. and then cries about it afterwards because he can't believe that he sunk to that level. The the blurring of that line is he a good guy or is he a bad guy? No, he's a human being. The, it's it's an extreme case of that. I don't think all men yeah. break down and and hit women because that's how they embrace their bad side. Yeah. But if you want to look at Fire Walk with Me as you know that that call to arms of being able to accept and embrace the darkness that lives within you. And if that's how you view Laura Palmer's struggle um, and that her embrace of her dark side, her embrace of Bob and what it, what that means for her life, if that's the only way that she can reach salvation, is that what Jeffrey is going through? Is this a prototypical version of that Mm -hmm. story being brought out? Is that what happened in Eraserhead at the end of Eraserhead? Is that Henry embracing his dark side, killing his baby in order to reach enlightenment of some kind? You know, is that is that something that that we can look at in David Lynch? Because that's also very unsettling too to say to tell your audience that no, there it's not black and white. Mm -hmm. It's not good guy versus bad guy. We all have the capabilities to be wonderful, you know, good human beings like Sandy, who apparently has no bad side yeah. at all. Yeah. Well, um, she, she breaks up with her boyfriend. Over, I guess, yeah, I guess. but, <laughs> or we can be, we can embrace, you know, and be Jeffrey and, mm-hmm. and have, you know, conflicting emotions and conflicting motivations that, that kind of, you've never you know. supported my interpretation of the ending of the return so well, Lindsay, huh. <laughs> that Cooper is both good and bad now. He has come together as a whole. No, I've 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 said that all you agree along. With that. I, know, I do I know. agree with that. I know. You just disagree with what he's doing with Laura. But anyways, this is not about the return. No, it's not. Um though it could very easily become <laughs> that. <laughs> uh I think that that interpretation of the reality of of human the human condition or you know, I don't I don't know if David Lynch thinks about it in that way, but you know, he sees that this is, I, I think he sees that this is what humanity is. It's good and bad and, and they exist in in tandem, right? And that we can we can be both. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that is more clearly seen when you incorporate the deleted scenes into the wider version of the film. So the, the apparently the original director's cut, if he had released this as it was originally, originally filmed, would yeah. have been four hours long. Yeah. So he cut it down to I think one frame short of two hours, yeah. uh, and then an additional fifty minutes, almost fifty minutes or something, fifty-one minutes yeah. was released um, in two thousand eleven or something with a DVD release. Okay. So those that, are available online. Yes, so we, they're on we YouTube. Watch we'll them on YouTube. Them. Yeah. And they're fascinating to watch because they totally. We thought they yeah. totally changed Jeffrey's character. Yeah, entirely because the way that we viewed or the way that I viewed correct me if you yeah, disagree yeah. Uh, Jeffrey kind of his studies have been interrupted and he comes to town and he's um, he's facing the mortality of his father which again is something that's fairly common in in literature that you would face your father or your parents mortality and that is the point where you grow up as a character Mm -hmm. so this is jeffrey's coming of age moment where he has to face the fact that his father is dying and is frail and he has to step up and take control and he has one last childhood childish childlike hurrah finding the ear and going on this investigation 
but it ends up bringing him to a much more, more adult <laughs> place than he expected he would or that he thought he would when he picked the ear up in the field in the first place. So that's how that's one way of reading the film if you haven't seen the deleted scenes. Once you watch the deleted scenes, you realize that Jeffrey is totally fucked up from the beginning. He's yeah. like watching people. He's watching a date rape happen, and that's how you get introduced really, to him. Yeah, it doesn't intervene until the last possible until he's being uh, called away because of a phone. And call. even then, his intervention is like, "Hey, leave her alone." And then he walks away. Like right. he doesn't even like actually confront the guy or confirm that he's going to stop. He just walks away after yeah. he yells at him. Yeah, and it's in a weird industrial thing. It feels like the again the basement from. Uh, the Great Northern. The Great Northern. Uh, it's really, really, it's an odd scene. The The whole sequence, yeah, so there's a lot more of that. Uh, you get a lot more of Jeffrey's early days uh, coming back to Lumberton. There's a lot with him and his mother and his aunt, mm-hmm. who's played by the actress who plays Mrs. Tremont slash Chalfont. Yep. Uh, so another lunch favorite. Uh, and there's a lot of these three characters interacting, and, and it's a lot of it, like, in the movie, in the, the theatrical cut at least, it's not clear whether Jeffrey's coming back just for a little bit until his dad gets better or anything. This they spell out, no, you have to come back and you can't go back to school. We can't afford for you to be in school and for father to be on life support, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is a permanent thing for him. Which is not the impression I had at all. No. So uh, you also get the the introduction of Sandy and them meeting uh, for the first time. I always thought that they knew each other from... Uh, school and at one point she even does say, "Oh, I remember you from right. Center High or whatever it's called." Uh, and he's like, "Yeah, yeah, you know, it's whatever." And I was like, "Oh, yeah, so they they knew each other there." Yeah. But in the extended cut, you get the them actually meeting in her house for the first time. You get a lot more. He had a girlfriend back mm-hmm. in college. I've been Megan Mullally, which I really thought was interesting. Oh, She's yeah. from uh, Will and Grace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they break up gradually over like two scenes over, over the, the phone. phone. It's yeah, really they, she ends up going on a date with some guy, and then she ends up marrying him. It's very strange, but it, it colors that character because he doesn't really seem to care all that much yeah. that she's she he cares, but not really. It's just it's his character is given many more layers that, that is, make him indifferent and cold, but also um, like deeply, deeply troubled in a way that the theatrical cut just doesn't show. Yeah, you get the theatrical cut, Jeffrey, when he comes home, he's, he's sad his dad's hurt, and he's, he's yeah, he's facing his mortality for the first time. Um, but he still has, you know, he's still doing the chicken walk, you know, yeah. like that's that's still the early Jeffrey that we get. Yeah. You don't get that in the in the extended, uh, or the deleted scenes, I should say. Yeah. Uh, those are very much more, he has a dark side to him already. Um, and this and is just an excuse for it to be kind of, to blossom to be, and to come to, to fruition. Out, yeah. Which I think is is kind of an interesting statement that the, the darkness was there all along and that, you know, it was it was latent in him and it was going to come out. But it does kind of undercut everything you've just been saying about, you know, finding peace with your own darkness. Right. And uh, Jeffrey kind of coming to that conclusion eventually on his own. Which um, wouldn't have happened if you had all of those deleted scenes and then the Robin scene at the very end of this film mm-hmm. that kind of brings us to this place of acceptance and light that the Robins did return. Yeah. There were no Robins for, for Jeffrey yeah, it in really the film. Feel like it, it feels yeah. like he was always in a place with the with the Beatles and the 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 yeah. dung and under the you know, like he, yeah. that's literally underground. He's in a basement the first time we see him. So I mean I don't feel like there's a certain vision there. There's a certain story that's being told, but I don't think that I, I understand why those scenes were cut. Maybe well, and that the film, oh yeah. the theatrical <laughs> version that we get, 
seems to present a much more cohesive vision of the story, the story of, that they were going for. Yeah, yeah. of yeah. of this character and this kind of um, exploration this of trope. darkness. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And honestly, you a lot of the scenes were just kind of filler. I mean, like the the fact that they were gone. They, they just seemed like extra as we were watching them. We're yeah. just like, oh, this scene doesn't need to be in there. Yeah, I can totally see why he cut absolutely every single one of the scenes. Yeah. There's only one semi-key scene, which is an extra meeting between Jeffrey and Dorothy in her apartment. Right. Um, where she takes him up to the roof. Right. And she threatens to jump and right. commit suicide. And I think maybe they have sex there for the right. first time, which is different, which is which would also change things because... Uh, the first time they, they have sex is the night that Jeffrey gets caught by um, Frank yeah. and gets taken for his ride, right? Where yeah. So that compresses their relationship even more. Mm-hmm. It's like they just made love for like the first time. He's still conflicted about what he did with her mm-hmm. while it was going on. And then, uh, you know, next thing you know, he's getting, <laughs> he's going to get beat Roughed up by Frank. Up yeah, by Frank, by Frank and, and, and being yeah. sung to into a d- industrial lamp yeah in one of you know that that scene with Roy Orbison's in dreams is is Just, rightly yeah listed as one of the creepiest most surreal scenes and uh in in film maybe even it's very unsettling very very unsettling um but it, it's great and in here it feels like that would maybe be a little bit less and so yeah th- those deleted scenes i definitely if you're a fan of the movie watch them if you haven't sure yeah um, they're, they're enlightening and they're fun to watch um interesting to kind of see what other possibilities there are for these characters but i do think that the film we're presented with is the strongest version of that film and inserting yeah. those scenes in a kind of missing pieces narrative the way that some fans have done with the missing pieces in fire walk with me, me wouldn't work it it kind of feels like the way i feel about the the the, the fan, cut, cuts, the fan yeah. edit of firewalk with me with the missing pieces inserted or most of them um it just takes away from the message of the film as i see it yeah and you may disagree with me entirely but i you know no i agree i agree i will fight you <laughs> <laughs> on this case we do agree um yeah it definitely does detract from from the overall theme um so there is this this idea, this interpretation, and I don't want to get into too much of, of a kind of a dream interpretation analysis of this because it doesn't seem like this works. But it is interesting to consider that the film begins with uh, going into an ear. Like you see an ear and it's, it's Dorothy Valance's husband's severed ear. Mm-hmm. And it ends with a shot pulling out of Jeffrey's ear, which, uh, you know, a few minutes before the end during the Robin's return scene. And... Uh, some people have have wondered if that maybe is indicative of all of this being a dream of Jeffrey's. His father is alive and well and and doing fine, watering the garden or talking to a neighbor or whatever at the end of the film. Um, he's with Sandy in the kitchen. They're all happy. His grand or his uh, his aunt is there. Mm-hmm. Everybody's happy. Everybody's you know the Robins have returned. Everything's great. Um, and it seems like up until that point, everything was kind of falling apart and things were going to shit. So is that um, a very optimistic reading that that he dreamt this life, that he dreamt that that adventure for himself before he uh, wakes up and is settled into suburbia? Or is that um, kind of a... A nightmare that he had to survive in order to come out as a better person. Right. Or is that totally invalid? Is it not a valid critique? Yeah. 
No, or I, valid reading, I mean. Yeah, and I feel like it's it's possible, but not not it doesn't feel very likely. Again, there's no. not there's not a whole lot of dreamy feel. I mean, there's some there's some weirdness, but it could just be drug drug induced, you know, mm-hmm. in in a lot of cases. Um, so I, I I think it's a worthy thing to think about for a little while, but uh, the film feel like it's holding your hand a little bit too closely to really force you to question things like and that. And I don't I don't think that it's necessarily Lynch's style to say, oh, it was all a dream. Like that's that was a big criticism that people had of the return that um, the reading that this was a dream and that it ended and that we were presented with the part 18, you know, Richard and Carrie in Odessa was real life. And that was um everything else before that was somebody's dream and they woke up from the dream and this was reality or something mm-hmm. um, because it does seem a little bit like a cop-out, right? So if that's not the way it is, there are still elements in the film itself, the quote-unquote dream, if you're looking at it that way, that do feel very dreamlike. But I think that's just David Lynch saying that this is how he views the world and this is how things can be twisted in you know reality can be stranger than fiction you know these these things could happen in real life and we just have to recognize that they happen and and mm-hmm. do what we can with when we're confronted with them yeah. and that's that's where i mean i watched an interview um with david foster wallace and charlie rose back in i don't know when it yeah, was it like mid 90s and, uh, and he's talking, David Foster Wallace was talking about seeing Blue Velvet for the first time, and he does cite the yellow man scene as uh, particularly surreal in that Lynchian way. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's one of those things that if this were a dream, you wouldn't need an explanation for it. We wouldn't seek an explanation for it. So uh, it, in that sense, it kind of, it does let lynch off the hook for explaining things but i think the point of all of that is to david lynch doesn't want us to be let off the hook he wants us to just accept that real life doesn't have answers so if we look at that as a dream then we can say oh okay we can walk away because it's a dream but if it were real life we would want answers but he wants us to say no because it's real life we don't want answers And, or you're and not going to get that. You're not going to get the answers, yeah. even if you do want them, yeah. or even if you are seeking them. And I think that's the more important thing mm-hmm. to walk away from. That's you know kind of what I was talking about at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. How no. I view the, the film. Yeah, definitely. I think that I think that's a good a good way to interpret it for sure. So I guess that's really all the film analysis that we were going to do. We yeah. didn't go into anything too deeply, but I think most people Blue Velvet is pretty well trod at this point. Yeah. with the analysis. Portion yeah, we're not going to add much new stuff here no. anyways. But, I mean, do you have any favorite scenes or, or favorite sequences, um, favorite imagery? There were, There's some really striking stuff. The one where uh, uh, when Dorothy first catches him, forces him to strip down, and they're kind of like cuddling on the, the couch. Right. And there's the, it's just the way they're whispering, mm-hmm. and uh, she's asking him, like, do you like the way I feel and everything? Mm-hmm. It was a very, very... You know, it's surreal and like strangely erotic mm-hmm. and kind of disturbing all at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's again, it precedes that that really. I mean, the, the let's just talk about uh, Dennis Hopper's oh, yeah. performance 
fucking amazing. Yeah. I mean, so great. And he lobbied so hard for that role. Yeah. He he wanted that role because he said he was Frank Booth. I don't know how true that was. I don't. I didn't meet he Dennis like, Hopper. Yeah, he seems no like idea. a fairly normal guy. I don't think he's gonna you know, murder anyone with him. But he knew oxide. that nitrous oxide would be better than originally. Helium was what David Lynch wanted Frank Booth's oh, character okay. to inhale, which would have added a completely different surreal and kind of comic <laughs> yeah. air to those scenes. Yeah. Um, yeah. This worked better. Dennis Hopper went for more literal because apparently whatever nitrous oxide does to your body it does enhance your sexual um drive i guess so he says that's something that people actually use before sex so yeah and he knows but he knew that is yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, indicative but but he is great and i mean that so that scene for sure is i mean i think it's most people it's the scene that really ratcheted the movie up and, and it was it's just such a great introduction to him. He just walks in, he's telling her to fuck off, where's mm-hmm. my drink? You know, all yeah. this stuff. It's again, Lynch is great at character introduction because mm-hmm. he just, he appears on screen and he's there all at once and he's terrifying. Like, yeah. absolutely fucking terrifying. And there's all kinds of like, you know, uh, Oedipal impulses that are being described yeah, the mommy, there. mommy, daddy thing. Is yeah, really without weird. getting into any kind of real deep Freudian analysis. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that is possible, I suppose, if you want to go down that route. But, um and and the the idea that Jeffrey as a voyeur is watching all of this behind those the, in the slats the or between the slats of the closet door very much like Audrey Horn does in in Emery Battis's office mm-hmm. it's a great way of having a character it, first of all it looks great it's mm-hmm. noir to the extreme the light and dark right there on his face um he's his vision is obscured, which is perfect for from a dream logic point of view, but also from reality. We are not totally able to see from everything at once. We don't understand character motivations. We don't understand everybody we meet. We don't understand what we see. Even what we see is colored by our perceptions of those things. So it's a very great, it's, it's a wonderful way of showing us how a character like Jeffrey might um, be introduced to a scene like, the yes, ritualistic yeah. sex scene yeah. that we're that we're all exposed to mm-hmm. through his eyes. I love that scene too. I think that would probably be one of my favorites. Yeah, and even he, though it's terrifying, and oh, hard, yeah. very well, very yeah. hard to watch. It is. But. Um, no matter how many times you watch it, it's still really terrifying. Yeah. Uh, any others? Uh, you know what? I have a new one. There yeah. was in the deleted scenes. There was five minutes of this guy doing bad one-line jokes and this like honky tonk music accompaniment. It was the stupidest thing ever, and it went on. Like that was that was another Lynchism. The scene that just goes on way too long. This thing, <laughs> Jeffrey and Sandy are at the slow club, just watching it, and it was just terrible, terrible, unwatchable stuff. I'm like, that's my new favorite Lynchism scene of too much. <laughs> it reminded me of um, Fringe Productions, Fringe Theater. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think I said that when we were watching it. We have a friend from Australia who. Um, does this act at uh, fringes all around the world. I've seen ads for it in Edinburgh and I've seen ads for it in Adelaide and he does it here in Edmonton. It's um, a young man dressed as a gorilla, dressed as an old man, sits in a rocking... Sorry. A young man dressed as a gorilla, dressed as an old man, sits rocking in a rocking chair for 56 minutes and then leaves. And while doing this or while doing that or while eating a banana or whatever. And we've seen this a couple of times at uh, (laughs) there's a during the fringe, the Edmonton fringe, um, a late night cabaret, which is at midnight every night of the fringe. And he's done this. He just literally will dress up as a gorilla or dress up as a 
a gorilla dressed as an old man. And he'll <laughs> sit on a rocking chair behind the the Everything on the stage, on, which is yeah. like a, a late night talk show kind of thing. And he just sits there, and literally he will rock for an hour, and then he just gets up and leaves. And it's so bizarre, but I love it every time he does it because there's always somebody in the audience who's like, "What the fuck is this?" Yeah. You know, and I can just imagine that that's the kind of shit that Lynch would eat up. You know, yeah. because it's it it's wonderfully bizarre and. But there's some kind of it makes sense on some base level that that would happen. And especially with that environment that, you know, if you've ever been to a fringe festival or seen fringe theater, that's exactly the kind of environment where this kind of thing happens. So um, that the slow club to me watching that scene before watching the deleted scenes, I thought the slow club club was just, yeah, you know, just a music Dorothy club Downs. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But then seeing that they also host these kind of bizarre fringe acts it kind of made me think, um, well, I, I mean, it made sense all of a sudden that there's this hipster band called the Slow Club that hit, borrowed the name clearly from this. Yeah. And I mean, this is this is kind of, it's such a hipster film in yeah. that sense. Yeah. It's, it's very fringe. It just seems very... Uh, I'm glad you brought up hipsters because yeah. that's my other favorite scene yes. in this PBR. Yeah. You know, th- this is literally <laughs> the reason why hipsters throughout the 2000s loved PBR was yeah. because... Heineken! Fuck that shit! Pops Blue Ribbon! So, I mean, that's that's another little cultural tidbit. Well, and tidbit, also, I mean, really. PBR is cheap. and Oh, yeah, you no, know, there's other reasons. Yeah. I'm just saying, like, this is the, the thing that really solidified it. And right. It's, it's so odd to think about it in that way. But, I mean, Lynch was a, was and is a favorite of the art house crowd, which yeah. is um, where a lot of the so-called hipsters uh, <laughs> have originated. So <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, any, of, any other really standouts for you? I, I do love the final sequence too. I mean, it's it's so uh, simple. He's like he plants the radio, and then he he jumps into the closet again, and then sure. he just jumps out to grab the gun, and and it's just like it's it's a really really uh, well done tense tense scene. Yeah. Um, and yet it you know the fact that the guy's just standing there and has blood squirting out of his brain sure. still and everything like it, it's Lynch. And yet it's it's uh, the accessible thriller kind of feel to it of, of a traditional, more traditional film. Well, yeah, it felt like the ending of um, any one of those noirs that, that we mm-hmm. watched this summer, um, Sunset Boulevard or... Um, Vertigo or... Yeah, yeah, where the ending has this, it, it just keeps ratcheting up the tension, even though it's not quite as dark and sinister as, as Frank Booth's introduction, but it... Um, and it feels much more conventional, but it's still like he does. David Lynch does tension very well, yeah. as we know, yeah. whether it's just a shot of nothing happening or it's a shot of a lot of things happening. Um, even if you're not really aware that all those things are happening, because while this is happening, yeah, the yellow man is there and Dorothy Valance's husband is dead. And there's, you know, the TV is is crackling. crackling and off, yeah. I mean, there's a lot in the radio going off. There's lots of things that that are going on. Um, it's a very loud, cacophonous kind of moment. I do like the scene um, when we when we see Dorothy on Sandy's front lawn or mm-hmm. near Sandy's house and she's naked. Yeah. Um, that also came from a personal experience of David Lynch's, which I think is is another way of an, of looking at how um, his personal experiences and his beliefs about things inform his art. Because apparently he did encounter a naked woman. He and his brother uh, came across her when he was a young boy. And it haunted him for 
years, clearly, because 1986 comes and he puts it in the film, um, or in this film. So, I mean, that's another, I, I think, yeah, just another example of how, um, you know, once I knew that that was based on a real event and that he put it in the, in the film, it's almost like, um, I don't know if an exorcism is the way you want to talk about it, but it's one way I think other artists would look at it that way is as, you know, you're going to put your greatest fear into your art as a way of conquering that greatest fear. So mm-hmm. if, you know, this was a way for David Lynch to come to terms with that maybe, or yeah. just a way for him to explore the horror of it in, in a safe place. Like yeah, the film. yeah. Yeah. Well, and it is, it is kind of scary, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, and I, I love it for the juxtaposition of the fifties and the eighties mm-hmm. again. Uh, Cause it's like the preceding preceding that is, uh, you know, Mike Sandy's boyfriend's coming to beat up Jeffrey cause he stole his girl. And then all of a sudden there's a naked woman there who's been right. assaulted and is crazy and high on drugs maybe or something. Yeah. And it's just, it's this massive intrusion into this fifties drama that's kind of under the surface somewhere. Um, and it's it's great. I I love it for that. You know, I thought it was just well, the fifties drama is right on top. It's not yeah, you know, sorry, yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> and then this yeah. comes in, and yeah, 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 yeah. No, definitely, that's a that's a good way of looking at it. So yeah, I guess that's it. Where do we go from here? Uh, next up, we have a pair of Mark Frost film projects. One one's a TV movie. So the first one is called uh, Scared Stiff. Um, and it's it was a made-for-TV movie. Okay. Um, it doesn't sound particularly great. Uh, the second one is The Believers, which was a 1987 film um, that it's a, like a cult thriller yeah. kind of thing. Uh, that one's notable because it does have Martin Sheen yes. in, in the starring role. Jed so, Bartlett. Jed Bartlett President himself. Bartlett. Yep. From our second favorite show. Yes. Aiden's well, first my favorite. My first favorite show, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, there's a fairly good cast. I mean, it was it's got a 6.1 on imdb right. so you know that's, it's that's not, not too bad it's not totally crazy uh we might do those as a package deal we haven't quite decided yet yeah um they both came out in 1987 and mark frost wrote both of them he mm-hmm. was not involved with directing them he no. just did screenplays okay yeah. so yeah again just another uh way for us to look into mark frost's uh development as a writer and i think it's interesting if if these are both horror films because horror comes into twin peaks a lot in mm. in many different places and we haven't really looked at David Lynch as a horror filmmaker so uh, you know well, I did from Eraserhead right but, but I mean Eraserhead has body horror and it, it's not like conventional horror and there are a lot of conventionally scary things in Twin mm-hmm. Peaks and I always wondered where that came from because it didn't seem like that was something that David Lynch would bring to the table his stuff was much more psychological and um, or body horror mm-hmm. whereas I I, I I'm really learning a lot about Mark Frost's um, contributions to Twin Peaks, and I'm really interested to see how this plays into it. So yeah, me too. I think yeah. it'll be really interesting. Dead to see. curious about this, and yeah, I hope well, you guys will join us for those. Yeah, because uh, and I hope that you're learning as much as we are about Mark Frost because um, yeah, it's been really interesting. It so has been really cool. But this is the end of our Blue Velvet episode. Um, I'm going to go off head uh, down to the kitchen and grab a PBR. Because we're out of Heineken. And uh, enjoy the rest of my weekend. What are you going to do next, Aiden? Uh, uh, I'm going to enjoy this uh, Twin Peaks Day. Today is Twin Peaks Day. It is. It is uh, February 23rd. 24th. 24th. Jeez. I don't yes. even know Twin Peaks Day that the day that Twin that The day that Agent Cooper entered Twin Peaks for yeah. the first time. 
Uh, so we are recording this on the 24th. Uh, so happy yeah, Twin Peaks Day. Yes, happy Twin Peaks Day to Happy you. belated Twin Peaks Day to our to listeners. all of you. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to enjoy that. I might watch the pilot again. I don't know. I love watching the pilot. On I think I will do the year. same. And uh, yeah, with my PBR in hand. A little bit of Frank Booth in Twin Peaks. If you're enjoying the show and want to join the conversation, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash bickeringpeaks, all one word. You can also follow us on Twitter, that's at bickeringpeaks. Or you can head over to iTunes and leave us a review or comment. We'd love to hear from you.